Hi readers, and welcome to episode 23 of Lost the Plot, the Tinted Edges monthly podcast all about books. I'm your hosting Harrod, and today we have a special guest from the Australian National University, Dr. Catherine Bode, to talk about her incredible project, the Australian Newspaper Fiction Database. I noticed that there was a lot of bibliographical records of this newspaper fiction, about 300 novels, you know, that were published in Australia in newspapers, and I thought, I wonder if there's more. Just you wait to hear how many newspaper fiction stories she uncovered. This episode, there is plenty of book news and plenty of stuff going on in Books for the World, and don't forget, you can find out more information about all the stories we talk about in each episode of Lost the Plot by checking out the show notes on the Tinted Edges webpage at www.tintededges.com slash lost dash the dash plot. Okay, so before I even begin, I have a confession. I must come clean. After jumping on the scathing bandwagon against backwards-facing books in previous episodes and scorning, scorning those who had arranged their bookshelves with the pages facing outwards so that it's like some neutral, decorative, artistic thing where you can't even see what book is what, I must now eat my words because I will admit I tried it and I liked it. Now, this is not to say that I've gone and turned every single book on every single one of my shelves around. No, 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 no. I have not completely abandoned all of my beliefs. I still think, for the most part, it is a ridiculous trend and it makes it completely impossible to see which of your books is which. However, if you follow my book blog Tinted Edges, you may have noticed that I do like to collect a certain kind of book. I like to collect books with coloured and decorated page edges. Anyway, so on a whim, one day, I turned my Tinted Edges books around, and they look amazing. So what do you think? Am I a sellout, or am I an artistic genius? Have a look at the photos and leave me a comment, let me know what you think. Now, the last few episodes we've been talking about book lists, so there is actually another book list out this year. If you didn't get enough 2018 reading inspiration from the episode that I did with Annie in episode 20, Better Reading has released their list of top 100 favourite homegrown reads. There's a great mix of new and old Australian classics, and if you still haven't quite decided what your reading goals are going to be for 2018, well, here is another list for you to be overwhelmed with. There was quite a lot going on in Books for the World during March. The Easter Bunny visited our street library and some of our visitors got to enjoy some little Easter egg treats as well as some books. There's also a lot going on in the Canberra Street Library space and I'm hoping to have some exciting things to share with you over the next couple of months. Street libraries are springing up everywhere, including two new ones in Warramanga. So if you want to hop on the bandwagon, Go have a listen to episode 9 to find out how to make your own street library, and if you do make one of your own and you live in Canberra or Queanbeyan, let me know, because you may be inducted into a secret street library club. Anyway, there are a few opportunities to share the book love this month. The ACT Writers' Centre are collecting books for people who lost their homes in the Tathra bushfires all throughout the month of April. You can drop books off at the ACT Writers' Centre office in Gorman House in Ainsley between 10am and 4pm on any Friday in April. The Indigenous Literacy Foundation has launched its Great Book Swap campaign for 2018, and you can organise a book swap at your workplace or your school by checking out the information on their website at www.greatbookswap.org.au. Now, last month we talked about our friends at Sokola Gunung Merapi, the little school at the base of a volcano in central Java, Indonesia, who are running a new fundraising campaign to build on all the things they achieved in 2016. With the money that we raised in 2016, they were able to renovate their classroom and build a school library that is being used by the whole community. They have £700 left to raise in 17 days, and you can find their campaign in the show notes. So March means that it is time for the Book Awards to really start ramping up. The Man Booker International Prize longlist has been announced, with the Man Booker Dozen, which is kind of like a book baker's dozen, of 13 novels translated into English, uh, vying for the prize. 
And I've actually read one of them already, which is called The Stolen Bicycle by Taiwanese author Wu Ming Yi, which I'll chat about later on in the show. And the winners are going to be announced on the 22nd of May. The Children's Book Council of Australia has announced its shortlist as well as its notables list. There are five award categories and the winners will be presented in August. An inaugural prize, the MUD Literary Prize, MUD, was announced. Now, while I cannot for the life of me figure out what MUD stands for, the MUD Literary Club started up to support authors at the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival and the Adelaide Writers Festival. The winner was Sarah Schmidt for her debut novel, See What I Have Done. And if anybody can figure out what MUD stands for, can you please let me know because I am dying of curiosity. The long list for the Australian Book Industry Awards has been announced, and there are 12 categories with eight long-listed books in each category, and the winners are going to be announced on the 3rd of May. The shortlists for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards have been announced, and this is a huge collection of awards with 16 different categories. I obviously will not go through all of these either, but the winners will be announced on the 30th of April. Now, the shortlist was announced for the Stella Prize, Australia's top literary prize for women, and on the 12th of April, which just went past, the winner was announced, and it is Tracker by Alexis Wright, which is very exciting. Another all-woman prize, the long list for the UK's 2018 Women's Prize for Fiction, has been announced on International Women's Day. There are 16 books in the running, and the winner will be announced on the 6th of June. Now, I actually celebrated International Women's Day myself, and this year's theme was Press for Progress, and I shared my reviews of some of my favourite books by diverse women. There are lots of different kinds of women writing phenomenal stories, and I shared six of my favourites on International Women's Day. But I was not the only one celebrating. A Western Australian bookshop called Stefan's Books got into the spirit of International Women's Day by filling the windows of their store with a selection of new fantasy, science fiction, and crime novels by women, and offering a 10% discount on any book written by or anthology edited by a woman. Incredible. Great idea. Now, speaking of incredible women, there were not one, but two amazing book discovery pieces of news in March. First was the incredible discovery of Australian author Miles Franklin's Last Diary. Now, the story is a little bit confusing because it involves a lot of Franklin's very distant relatives, and some of the newspaper articles didn't really get the detail very clear, but essentially it begins with a woman called Kim Goldsmith who inherited a suitcase from her grandfather who had in turn inherited it from his aunt who is Miles Franklin's first cousin. So you already see how confusing the story is going to be. Anyway, Goldsmith had given the suitcase to another distant relative of Franklin's, Margaret Francis, to scan some photographs for a family history she was working on. Frances called Goldsmith and said she had some huge news, but had to tell her in person, and drove across New South Wales to come tell her, and it turns out that Frances had found the final diary of Miles Franklin's 47 diaries. Franklin had bequeathed her diaries to the Mitchell Library, the State Library of New South Wales, and so Goldsmith officially handed over the diary in person to the library to join the other 46 in the collection. Now, the second one isn't a recent discovery, but the Bronte Society, who had a bit of book controversy themselves last episode, is going to be publishing two previously unpublished manuscripts by Charlotte Bronte. In 2015, a book was discovered in America that had belonged to Bronte's mother Maria. Maria had organised for her belongings to be transported to her, but many of them were lost in a shipwreck. However, a book given to her by her husband-to-be Patrick ended up being recovered somehow, and it ended up being something of a family heirloom, with lots of members of the family adding their own inscriptions and sketches and all kinds of things to the book. And among the pages of this book was a poem and a story written by Charlotte Bronte herself, and likely when she was still very young. However, when Patrick Bronte died, the book was sold at auction, and it wasn't until 2015 that it was tracked down in the possession of a private collector in California. Patrick had inscribed the book with the words, The book of my dearest wife, and it was saved from the waves. So then it will always be preserved. And it looks like he was right. 
Now, there are a lot of other upcoming new releases to keep an eye on. Marcus Zusak, who wrote the incredible novel The Book Thief, has announced his second book. It's going to be a young adult novel called Bridge of Clay, and it's scheduled for release in October 2018. The cover doesn't give much away. It's the silhouette of a boy on a roof in front of a bright orange cloudy sky, but very exciting nonetheless. Jodie Pico has announced a new novel called A Spark of Light. The book is about a gunman in a women's reproductive center and the events that led up to it, and like Bridge of Clay, it will also be out in October. Now, I am not quite sure how I missed this, but Audrey Niffenegger and her husband Eddie Campbell have released a book called Bizarre Romance. Niffenegger, the author of The Time Traveler's Wife and other novels and graphic novels, is a notoriously slow writer, though she has pointed out that she is not the slowest writer. <coughs> George R. R. Martin. <coughs> Patrick Rothfuss. Anyway, Niffenegger has been working on a novel called The Chinchilla Girl for ages, so I just have not been checking in on what she's been up to for a long time. However, this book was actually released in March. It's written by Niffenegger and illustrated by Campbell and is apparently heavily influenced by their own very long-distant relationship over many years. Canberra writer Zoya Patel's debut book, No Country Woman, a memoir about growing up in Australia from a Fijian Indian background, is going to be out in August, and I will definitely be reading it. Now, if you like books and you like baking, you must check out The Well-Read Cookie on Facebook. She decorates cookies with book covers, and it is basically the most wholesome thing on the internet. Anyway, she has a book coming out in September called The Well-Read Cookies, which I think will be a phenomenal coffee table book. Now, another spectacular book I want on my coffee table is a children's book by Jill Twiss, a writer for the show Last Week Tonight with comedian John Oliver. Now, before I go into this, I do want to sort of make a bit of a comment that John Oliver has been doing the publicity for this book, and I actually thought that he was the author, but when I read the news articles about it a little bit more closely, actually it was written by Jill Twiss. So just keep that in mind. Anyway, so the book is called A Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo, and it is a satire of a book by Vice President of America Mike Pence's daughter Charlotte and her pet rabbit with a very similar title, which is called Marlon Bundo's A Day in the Life of Vice President. Now, on the face of it, this doesn't sound like much of a troll. Oh, but it is. It really, really is. Because the Marlon Bundo in Oliver's book, well, actually, in fact, Jill Twiss's book, is gay, and Mike Pence is anti-LGBTIQ. Anyway, the publishers of Jill Twiss's book organized for this book to be published a day before the release of the Pence book, with the absolutely phenomenal result that not only did people get a bit confused when buying the books, and many, many people bought Twiss's book, but the satirical book actually hit the top-selling book on Amazon. So all of the proceeds are going towards helping LGBTIQ youth and AIDS organizations in the USA, and I definitely need to get myself a copy. There's also an audiobook version, which is narrated by a cast of different actors, including Jim Parsons and RuPaul. Now, not all of the book releases are exciting or wholesome. Some of them are downright terrifying, and I am sure I was not the only one to be horrified by the news that Pauline Hanson has written a book called In Her Own Words, and she asked former Prime Minister Tony Abbott to launch it for her. I actually had the shocking experience of walking past Pauline Hanson at the airport the other day, and look, in person she actually really is incredibly scary, and I have to say, as much as I wax lyrical about book launches and how great they are and all the free wine and cheese you usually get, a book launch with her and Tony Abbott sounds like the absolute last place that I would want to be. So it took place at Parliament House. I did not attend. I'm glad I didn't attend because apparently Pauline Hanson managed to, confusingly, compare herself to Nelson Mandela. So probably the most confusing book release that took place in March is actor Sean Penn's debut novel, Bob Honey Who Just Do Stuff. Now, if you can get your head around the poor grammar of the title, I salute you, but I doubt you'll be able to get your head around the concept. The book, which was released in March, as I said, is about a septic tank salesman called Bob who becomes an assassin killing elderly people in a bid to reduce their environmental and social impact. Yep. 
So Sean Penn, while promoting the book that he actually initially denied that he even wrote, did a very bizarre interview on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert where he lit up a cigarette on stage. Anyway, the book has been pretty well slammed by critics and I am not sure that curiosity is going to be enough to encourage me to give it a go. Now, speaking of film and books, it is time for book adaptation news. So in March, there were some very exciting reports that Amazon is angling to spend a billion dollars to adapt the series Remembrance of Earth's Past by uh, Liu Cixin, the first book of which, The Three-Body Problem, won the Hugo Award. While they don't have the rights yet, their proposal would be to turn the trilogy into a three-season TV series, which sounds incredible to me. The novel, The Three-Body Problem, is amazing. I thoroughly recommend that everybody read it. BBC Studios have announced a six-part adaptation of the late Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. The series is going to be called The Watch and will feature characters from the police department of Ankh-Morpork, which is a city on Pratchett's fictional planet of sorts called Discworld, which sits on the back of elephants on top of a giant turtle hurtling through space. The trailer has been released for the HBO film adaptation of Fahrenheit 451, based on the Ray Bradbury novel, and... Look, I just don't know. I wasn't that enamoured with the book, and the adaptation definitely seems much more action-heavy. There's lots of very action-y shots of fire in the trailer. And look, I am while I am intrigued by the casting of Michael B. Jordan, who is an African-American actor who's going to be playing protagonist Montag, and I will definitely go try to see it. I look think I think I'm going to find it maybe a bit stressful watching a, a film about book burning, but it's due to come out in May. Book adaptation mogul Reese Witherspoon has confirmed that she will be producing and starring in the film adaptation of Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, which was the top book in the 2017 Goodreads Choice Awards for fiction. Now, I haven't read this one, but it has been getting great reviews, so I should get myself a copy before the film comes out. Images have now been released of the TV adaptation of My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante, showing the girls cast as Elena and Leela as little girls and then as teenagers. I was in two minds about this book. I haven't quite decided if I'm going to give the rest of the series a go. Maybe I will. I I'm interested to see what they make of the TV show. So probably the most exciting adaptation news for me, and sliding right into the obligatory Harry Potter news section as well, is that a trailer has been released for the second Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them film, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and it looks epic. Absolutely epic. It's out in November. I'm 100% in love with Jude Law as Dumbledore. There are scenes in Hogwarts, scenes in Paris that looks like there's going to be so, so, so much more colourful and interesting magic than there was in the first film which was set in America, and I cannot wait to see it on the big screen. Now, good news for those of us who don't live in London and didn't get a chance to see the British Library's Harry Potter History of Magic exhibition. The exhibition has been digitised and is now available to peruse at your leisure on the Google Arts and Culture mobile app. However, while you might be getting more out of the Google Arts and Culture app, it sounds like you might be getting less out of the Harry Potter website Pottermore. The news broke that a large number of Pottermore's editorial staff have been sacked, and the website is apparently going to be reorganised. This won't be the first Pottermore makeover, as the site went through a drastic change from this immersive, Harry Potter student experience to an editorial site. However, given all the recent controversies, including the casting of Johnny Depp in the Fantastic Beast films after the allegations about the way he treated his ex-wife Amber Heard, staff have felt constrained in what they can write about, given what fans themselves are discussing. Now, J.K. Rowling herself also can't quite seem to shake her string of controversies after she liked a tweet on Twitter referring to trans women as men in dresses. Yikes. Her publicists have referred to the move as a middle-aged moment, and the tweet disappeared from her feed, but trans activists were not impressed. However, Harry Potter controversy was actually pretty low this month compared to some other book controversies. So there was actually this fantastic story in the UK about a bookseller who was on a bus in London reading her book. Jennifer Cairns was reading a book called All Our Spoons Came From Woolworths when another commuter, a man, decided to have a go at her for reading on the bus 
calling her names that I'm not going to repeat here because I really don't feel like marking this episode not suitable for children or work. Anyway, Jennifer responded in the most effective and, well, perhaps British way possible and said, I'm so sorry, but I love this book so much, I just can't wait to continue reading it. It's very wonderful. Listen. And she started reading the book aloud to the aggrieved man and read it aloud for two bus stops until the man eventually got off the bus. I take my hat off to this woman. If only more socially awkward situations could be resolved with a public reading. Back home in Australia, we've had our own little book controversy with a book called Deadly Woman Blues being pulled and pulped after a huge backlash. The book, which was an illustrated encyclopedia by music writer Clinton Walker, was published in February. And there are 99 biographical entries of black musicians, each one with a hand-illustrated picture done by Walker himself. However, Walker forgot a critical step to actually engage with the Aboriginal women he was writing about. Oh dear. Many of the women are now speaking out and have taken the opportunity to address the many factual inaccuracies in the book and the importance of proper consultation and engagement with Aboriginal women and letting Aboriginal women and Torres Strait Islander women tell their own stories. Walker has acknowledged that there are errors in the book as well as in his process, and the publisher have also released a public apology. Now, I'm pretty excited because it has been a while since there's been a juicy book crime, and in March there was the most outrageous of book crimes. You really have to watch the CCTV footage for yourself, but basically... The Burglar is this incredibly clumsy man who awkwardly manages to squeeze through the front doors of a Melbourne bookstore while balancing a takeaway coffee cup and pulling his backpack through the gap for some time. Somehow, after he seems to get stuck on the banister of the escalator, this thief manages to abscond with the store's safe. Given his difficulties in getting into and navigating his way around the bookshop, I'm actually amazed that he really thinks he'll be able to get the safe open. It is quite an eyebrow-raising video, and as far as I can tell, despite the burglar's seeming ineptitude, the crime has not yet been solved. So, finally, speaking of book crime, there is some sad news this month. Author Peter Temple died at the age of 72. Peter Temple was known for his crime fiction and his Jack Irish series was recently adapted into a TV series. Peter Temple was originally born in South Africa and won the Miles Franklin Award in 2010. So we are here today with Dr. Catherine Bode, Associate Professor of Literature at the Australian National University. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So we're going to be talking today about newspaper fiction. Do you mind explaining to our listeners what newspaper fiction is? Yeah, well, we're used to getting our fiction in the pages of a book, you know, between the covers. But in the 19th century, particularly in Australia, there weren't very many books at all. So books were very expensive to um, import from usually Britain, and there were very few printed in Australia. And even lending libraries, they think that only 3% of the population had access to them. So the main way that people got access to reading material, including fiction, was in um, a periodical form. So periodicals being those publications that are are published in a period of every week or every day or every month, whatever the period is. And there were um, literary magazines and journals in Australia, like there were in Britain, but these were very... um, these, these enterprises were very challenged by how far apart everyone lived in Australia. Mm. Um, so the main way that people read anything, including fiction, was in newspapers. And this happened everywhere. So most of the authors we know from the 19th century today, like Charles Dickens or George Eliot or, you know, all of these famous British authors, um, they were published first in periodicals mainly literary magazines. But in Australia, authors were published first and because there were no places for them to go to books, often only published in newspapers. And, you know, Australia had um, big um, daily newspapers like the Sydney Morning Herald and um, they, they still exist today. And it also had small newspapers for almost every little town. So... You know, maybe there was only 300 people in the town, but they'd have a newspaper. And that was how, you know, people 
got their news, got their information and got their fiction. And sometimes it was published just a short story or or um, sometimes it was published over a hundred different issues, you know, of a long novel that would come out just a chapter at a time. And then sometimes, particularly at Christmas, they would often, the newspapers would give, often give a full novel in the one newspaper, so pages and pages and pages. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So how big would one of those newspapers be? Oh, they could be um, 60 pages, you know. Oh, my but gosh. They were quite, they look quite different to our newspapers today. So... Someone from the 19th century would look at our newspapers today and think they were quite spacious. Yeah, So right. these are very, very narrow, um, small print in, in long, thin columns. Yeah. Yeah, so they crammed a lot of text in and very few pictures or, you know, there were some newspapers that had pictures but often nothing like that. Yeah, because I guess printing pictures back then would have been hugely expensive to be yeah. able to do. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in Australian newspaper fiction? Yeah, well, I wrote a book in that was published in 2012 and it was about the history of the Australian novel and thinking about, you know, how, how has it existed in the past and, and what can we know about it beyond the canonical figures. So we all know Henry Lawson, but who was writing at the same time as Henry Lawson, say, yeah. um, up to the present day. So in the present day, you know, we, we might all know, um, I don't know who's a famous contemporary author. Kate Grenville. Yeah, so we might all know Kate Grenville, but who are all the romance writers, all those women romance writers that are also Australian and are also producing novels that we don't actually think of as belonging to that space of mm. Australian literature. So when I was writing that book, I noticed that there was a lot of um, bibliographical records of this newspaper fiction. Mm. So there was about 300 novels you know, that were published in Australia in newspapers and I thought I wonder if there's more and um, and you know it was a, sort of an idle thought because newspapers are very tricky to look through you know there's no um, table of contents you know and but then um, when I was finishing up that book I heard that the National Library of Australia was digitizing all of these historical newspapers and I thought oh I wonder if it would be possible to you know, find if there was any more fiction than what we know about. And that's how it started, just thinking, oh, now that they're digital copies, can we can we get at what was actually in there? And how much fiction did you find once you started looking into it? Yeah, well, there was, there was a, a bit over 21,000 yeah. titles that we found between about 1865 and, and 1914. So we stopped in 1914 because we thought, well, we have to stop somewhere. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, our assumption was there wouldn't be much in the 20th century at all. Yeah. But there was thousands in the 20th century as well. So, yeah, these 21,000 titles. But, you know, there's a lot that are one-offs, but there's yeah. a lot that are also reprinted multiple times, and that could be, you know, a famous British author like Dickens. His um, Pickwick papers might be published in two metropolitan um, newspapers, for instance, but then you also have Australian writers, and they they might have had fiction published in um, you know forty or fifty separate newspapers, the same oh, title. Wow. But um, we didn't have a record of that title before, let alone that it was published, you know, multiply republished and went to this huge audience mm. that were reading all these separate newspapers. So yeah, lots and lots of fiction with a mixture of international, very well known authors, so authors from that we would think of as the canon. Um, to authors from a whole range of countries, so Austria, Canada, Italy, Japan, uh, Sweden, South Africa, you know, all sorts, and then and lots of French and German fiction in translation, and then a great deal of Australian fiction. So we had a couple of hundred or a few hundred as our, our record. Previously, there's now thousands of Australian titles. Wow, that's unbelievable. And so can you tell us how that sort of led to your project to be continued, the Australian Newspaper Fiction Database? Yeah, so thinking about Trove's digitised newspapers, thinking how can we find this fiction, um, I started to look at the fiction that I could find. So you can sort of scroll through and keep going and then you come across a story. Mm. And what I saw was that they all have different titles, they all have different authors, so you know, you'd know you spend your entire life just typing in a title and seeing if it was there, next title, next title, and you'd only find the titles you actually had an existing record of anyway. Yeah. But then there were also words that 
were used repeatedly to introduce the fiction, so things like serial story or our novelist. But the most common one was chapter. So chapter appears at the top of you know each instalment. So by doing a search for um, chapter or our novelist, um, you get say you know fifty thousand results or whatever, and the vast majority of them are fiction. So rather than having to sort of sort through, just say you, you searched for George Eliot, you'd get some fiction, but you'd also get obituaries, discussion of what an important author she was. Yeah. But if you use these terms that are used to surround the fiction, it's all fiction. And then it's a matter of um, exporting that all, like those hundreds of thousands of records, and then stitching them together. So some novels might have been published over a 100 separate issues. So you have to find those 100 separate ones and say, oh, these all belong to the same title yeah. in that same newspaper. So, yeah, that was the process. Once discovering the sort of, oh, we can find this fiction by thinking about them as sort of being signalled to readers in the newspapers with these terms, then we have to, you know, stitch all this fiction together and work out, you know, where all these individual instalments belong. That's brilliant. That's such a clever idea. And so... um I guess the ti- the title to be continued is sort of a reference to that serial, you know, at the end of every chapter it would be to be t- continued so that the reader would know that another one is coming in the next serial. So when when did you start uh, databasing all the Australian newspaper fiction? When did the project start? It started in 2013. Yeah. And that was when I, I got um, funding from the government to do it. So um, the to be continued was actually... It's worked out fine because you're, you're right, it does it does reference that idea of it being um, across different issues but also that we can continue it in the future with, you know, the, the public sort of reading this fiction and yeah. exploring it. But I wrote the grant thinking that to be continued would be the term I could use to search and it's a completely hopeless term because it appears right at the end and the way that, you know, a, a database relevance ranking works is it, it likes things right at the top. So it was sort of a mistake That's of my so original funny. method. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it started, I got money from the government mainly to hire um, Carol Hetherington, who is a really expert, knowledgeable bibliographer. So bibliographers are those people who um, try and work out who wrote this, um, where did it come from, you know, all the things I wanted to know about mm. these stories. And so, um, you know, there was a lot of her working on this to try and sort of you know, find the multiply anonymous texts and, and what they were. So, you know, it, often texts that were published, we now know them to have an author and a title. They wouldn't have the author, but often the title was different as well. So it was actually finding out who wrote this text or what sort of... Because often the text was changed as well. So you have like a, a story like... Um, there's one It's called something like um, The Russian Detective and in Australia... It becomes Barnes, the Australian detective. So they just completely, you know, modified it. But so she did lots and lots of work to sort of hunt down where did these all come from? What were they originally? Or, you know, are they entirely new? Because you can't really find out. Is something entirely new? I mean, that's a question. It's the known unknowns, you know, all the unknown unknowns. You have to actually do research to establish if we know about this already. Yeah. Yeah, so she did all that. And then I just wrote like a history of, of, the, of literature in Australia and Australian literature based on that. And then I wanted to not make it so that that data just gets lost. I want to firstly share it so that other people can do research, you know, academic or personal on what literature was published, and then to um, share it so that people can, you know, improve the quality of what's there by correcting the text and also um, finding new stories that it can be a repository for, you know, use into the future. And so um, the database is now online, publicly available. Um, I can't remember the URL off the top of my head. Oh, it's a terrible URL because, you know, I'm too cheap to pay for my own, so I just do it through the CDHR. We're all too cheap to pay for our own. So for for listeners, I'll... It's something like CDHR data sys something, but you can find it just by Googling to be continued... Australian newspaper fiction and then it comes up yeah and I'll put the link in the show notes so listeners want to and check it out themselves they can they can just click right, the link yeah. as well um so now that went public just early this year is that correct yeah so it sort of went it's sort of been public for 
a few months, so from about November last year, but okay, yeah. still working out a few bugs and that sort of stuff. So I just sort of made it um, known public at the start of March. Yeah, so kind of like the, the more yeah, official the public launch. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. And so um, now it's publicly available and people can make an account and they can log in and then they can sort of look at all the fiction that's available, look at the text and then go to Trove and, and see how it matches up to the actual scans of the newspapers. That's yeah. right. And so, um, I mean, how, how have you been finding the project has been going so far since the, you know, I guess since the official launch? Yeah, well, hundreds of people have, have signed up. And yeah, wow. People are busy correcting away. And, I mean, one of the things I found interesting was people were interested in particular types of fiction. Yeah. So I started making lists. So some people were only interested in reading Australian stories that had never been published before, so I made a list of that. Some people wanted crime fiction, so I made a list of crime fiction. And other lists I've done, young adult fiction, so there's lots of stories for children and young adults. Uh, romance fiction. Um, yeah, so I'm just sort of trying to sort of create lists that might interest different readers. Yeah. And then um, people can, you know, correct the, the titles of the stories and... There's also been hundreds of newspapers digitised since I did that big search. So, you know, there's... People... Oh, so the digitisation project, that's still ongoing. Yeah, so Trove is, is going to be doing that. It's been doing it for 10 years and it's going to be doing it at least another 10 years. Wow. So there so could be potentially, you know, like 20,000. There could be way there more could out be, there. There could be 50,000, 75,000 still to discover. That is unbelievable. So I've set up a little part of the database that people can choose a newspaper that's newly digitised and yeah. like you can um, you could do exactly what I did, which is to only select that newspaper, mm. you know, and then put chapter in and you get like this huge list of, of fictional titles and then you can add them to the database. And, you know, I mean, that won't interest everyone, of course, but the cool thing about it is that um, the National Library of Australia harvests from the database so if you find a new story that's never been found before it will be represented in the national library as well as in the database and you know you can i'm working on a publication platform so if you found one that you 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 just found and no one's ever read it before you can correct the text and then the aim is to sort of you can currently export it onto your desktop and mm. export it to a place where you know, you can sort of point to it and say, look, I, I corrected this. This is the first version of this outside of the newspapers. Oh, that's so exciting. So, you know, anybody could sign up and potentially be the discoverer of yeah, like yeah. brand new fiction that hasn't been seen for 100 years, yeah. more than 100 years, because yeah. you only went up to um, 1914. That's so that's so exciting. Or if you choose to do any year after 1914, then I won't have found it. So there's heaps of ah, years where, yeah. where there's heaps of newspaper fiction. Like there's... Yeah, there's, there's literally, who knows, thousands and thousands of titles. And depending, I mean, you'll find a lot that is already in the database, but it's really important to know where else it's published, you know. Yeah. So, um, But, you know, depending on what type of newspaper you're looking at or, or what your what search terms you're using or whatever, you could be finding entirely new ones as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a completely unexplored frontier beyond the... the um, 800 or so newspapers that were digitised when I was searching. Yeah. So, actually, that, that sort of brings me um, to a, a question I've got about... So, you only looked up to about 1914, so about, you know, the start of World War One. How... Do you know how long newspaper fiction was still being done? Or that's still kind of yeah, to be so determined? Yeah, so it was... Um, the reason I stopped in 1914 was my anticipation based on all the literary history I'm aware of was that I would observe a decline in newspaper fiction from 1895 mm. once um, British books became cheaper yep. and it would just cease to exist just in the early 20th off. century yeah. so that I would be able to sort of say I went up to 2000 I went up to 1914 I didn't find any you know ergo you know as everyone expected, it's in the 19th century. But in fact, there are thousands and thousands of stories in the early 20th century, which no one has ever explored. I mean, I haven't explored them in my book because I'd already started writing the book when I realised there were all these yeah, 20th century yeah. titles. And I was like, hmm, I, can't, I don't have time to, you know, look at this entirely unexplored area of, of 
literary history. Yeah, yeah but right. yeah, so you know, it's, volume two. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe for someone else to write. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's so much more to discover. Because I mean, yeah, that that would be really interesting. I guess comparing, you know, if obviously the decline didn't happen at the same time as in the UK or perhaps other countries, you know, there could just be a plethora of stuff out there. Yeah, I don't know about. So um, we have had a couple of listener questions actually about this project, um, and, and you mentioned before that uh, some authors like Dickens had works that were published in Australian newspaper fiction. Have you come across a lot of other, um, you know, quite famous classic authors or quite famous authors while you've been doing the project that um, maybe that you were a bit surprised to see had been published in this way? Or oh, I don't know what they were surprised to see. Um, I guess in the way we think of them now, we don't think of them as that you'd open the newspaper over your breakfast and you would find um, Victor Hugo or you'd yeah. find um, God, you wouldn't want to read Oscar Wilde. Breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Victor Hugo's in there, Oscar Wilde's in yeah. there. Um, yeah, so pretty much you name most canonical authors of the 19th century, it's likely that something of theirs showed up. Mm. There's Tolstoy, you know, there's... Mm. Like, um, gosh, that would take a lot of newspapers as well. <laughs> yeah, well, it was mainly his um, shorter oh, yeah. stories. But, yeah, so there's lots and lots of canonical authors in there. And, um, yeah, and it's interesting to sort of look in the newspaper pages to see how early Australians would have been reading this fiction from all around the world, um, having, you know, a very sort of, canonical author that's very literary and we would think of as today as sort of belonging to a separate sphere mm. alongside, you know, a popular story of bush rangers or of um, bigamy or, you know, all this other <laughs> fiction that was in there. So it really sort of um, flattens those hierarchies that we put literature into today. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And so the other question um, from from one of the listeners was – to what extent have these um, authors been women? And, you know, I, th- I think you were saying to me before that there's actually been a lot of uh, newspaper fiction that's been published anonymously and, you know, how, how much of that potentially has been done by women and, um, you know, maybe women publishing under pseudonyms as well. Yeah. So um, basically of the 21,000 titles, I think there's like 6,000 or so that, despite Carol's, you know, heroic bibliographical efforts, we have no idea who wrote them. Um, So it is possible they were all women, perhaps. But what we actually found, and this is in a context where it's actually been argued that in periodicals in the 19th century, most of the authors were women. So there's this sense that, you know, reading fiction was seen as quite a frivolous activity. You know, women were frivolous. Fiction readers and writers were seen as mostly women. Yeah, right. So that was that's the argument that's still made about American and British fiction. But in Australia, of the authors we know, like the majority are men. So 65% from all national categories. So whether they were sort of looking amongst all this women-authored British fiction and mainly choosing male-authored fiction, I don't know. But in Australian fiction, it's, it's really dominated by men. So, um, you know, like over 65%. Uh, in general, but in some parts of the provincial newspaper press, for instance, like 90% men. And so there's this sort of sense that it was maybe because this is a place where the only way you can access fiction is through newspapers, that because of this context, the idea that it was somehow sort of frivolous um, lost its grip and so it became this space where men were very interested in participating Australian men Um, and so yeah what we see is a very male dominated um, Australian newspaper fiction industry but there's still a lot of women's fiction in there and in fact because women were you know possibly writing um, anonymously um, we find fiction by well-known authors that hasn't been discovered before well-known women writers so, oh, really? Yeah. So, um, so for instance, to give two examples, I mean, well-known yeah. as in to like literary historians, like I don't know whether they would be um, household names, 
But um, Catherine Martin is a, a feminist author who um, is known, for instance, as the first um, Australian woman to write a novel um, centrally featuring, featuring an Aboriginal character, an Aboriginal protagonist. Wow. And she's also um, wrote a novel called The Australian Girl, which sort of set up the archetype of the sort of feisty Australian heroine who rode a horse and, you know, still danced in the ball and, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, so we found multiple stories by her that hadn't been recorded before. Um, and another one is, um, and we published them actually in a book. And one of the sort of side shoot, offshoot projects of this is going to be sort of taking some of the unknown fiction and sort of republishing it in book form. Yeah. Um, and then another one, Jessie Mabel Waterhouse, so she's known as a poet, um, lots of work by her, um, and um, the Trove Book Club are, are running a, a, a digital book club and they're starting with one of her works, which it has this sort of a bit Jane Austen-esque. Um, so, yeah, there's lot. I mean, it's interesting because even though it was male-dominated, there's still lots of potential for new feminist literary histories from these women whose works have never been taken out of the newspapers have never been and therefore have been forgotten yeah and yeah so one of the aims of the database is just like whether or not it ever gets published in a book form just to make the women's writing that was there more uh accessible um more um referenced within the the catalogues and more able to be sort of explored by contemporary readers so there's lots of women writers but yeah they were outnumbered by their male um, compatriots definitely yeah and I guess you know some of these some of these women authors were possibly very influential if you know they were being published in newspapers and, and their things were being distributed and read quite broadly yeah um, so and possibly also being read by men quite a lot if they were being published in newspapers and that was really the only yeah. way to get published back then oh, that's that, yeah that's fascinating um, and do you, so when when people were being published in newspapers anonymously, was it sort of more they would use like the word anonymous, or they'd use like a kind of you know cute name like girl from the bush, or they'd use like a straight pseudonym? Have you found any trends to do with that? Uh, there is trends. So um, in the it, like from about the mid nineteenth century. There's much. It's much more common for it to just have no name. Yeah, and that becomes less common um, as the century wears on. Um, and then there are a lot of pseudonyms. They also become slightly less common. So the trend overall is for titles to be more likely to be named. Mm. But still, you get to the end of the nineteenth century. I think you've still got forty percent or something that are that have no author. So that name many forty percent. Yeah. Why do you think that was that people wanted to publish anonymously? Because they could be more frank, or because it might not have been a choice of the author. Oh, so okay. You could have an author who was published in one newspaper without being named, and in another newspaper being named, or um, use a pseudonym of one form in one newspaper and a different form. So these yeah. these might have been decisions made by the the newspaper editors, mm. or by there were people also who who bought titles from authors and sold them on to multiple newspapers, so they might have been making the decision. Oh, okay. so, like a story broker kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, we, we think of, I guess, the author as being the decider because in contemporary culture, we literary culture, you know, in a way we sort of access a work through the, the person of the author. We sort of tie the work very closely to, the, to that person, mm. but it wasn't like that in the 19th century. It was much more... A, um, a sense of, of text being um, loosely tied to authors, I guess. Yeah. So a reader wouldn't be surprised to find no author name. Yeah. I w- yeah, and I wonder if that sort of allows the work to speak for itself a little bit more when you're reading it with no context and not comparing it to other things that the author has done. Yeah, though it was also very, very common for there to be no author name and then to say um, what we might call a, a signature, which is by the author of and then a list of other titles. Oh, so, okay. So you could, yeah, there was a way to link well. them up. Yeah, perhaps that became more common as, yeah, the 19, okay. as the 19th century progressed as well. So there is this sense of that groups of works can be tied together 
but they're not necessarily tied to a particular person as yeah. well. Yeah. So, um, and that might be just because, you know, you're reading, you know, you widely read newspapers. You know, people might have got a, um, they might have their local newspaper that they buy and then every week the, um, the, the sort of compendium newspaper arrives from the city which has, you know, a summary of all the week's news and, and lots of fiction. And then you might also get, you know, some other newspaper from a nearby town. And so you're much more likely to recognise the title than these different versions of the author's name. Mm. And that's also how we can find authors like Catherine Martin because it might list the titles or say by the author of a title and then you can link that to that person. And so, you know, you, that's the way of actually piecing together retrospectively who the author was by the signals given about who, what else they wrote, but not their name. Yeah, and putting together that bibliography that otherwise we just wouldn't have any idea about. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And so, um, you know, you said you've had hundreds of people signing up to the website to uh, help correct the text. So I, I've signed up and, I, like, it's, it's really cool because, you know, you, you can have a read at, at what the um, – because Trove, I understand – they use software to try and, you know, take out the text from the scanned image and put it into, you know, like, like a word format, basically. Um, but the software is still learning. And when you've got errors in typing or, you know, ink blots and stuff like that, yeah. sometimes it can pull out some pretty... Or well, the page has gone coloured, discoloured, you know, yeah. over time. Or, yeah, there's all sorts of reasons why it can't recognise the, le- the letters the very letters. well. And you start getting some quite creative symbols going on in there um and so you know one of the big parts of the project is that people can make an account and then they can go onto the trove website and they can look themselves at the the scan and then correct the the text themselves so um what's the if you know people want to get involved some of the listeners want to get involved and contribute to the body of australian literature um what's the best way for them to go about that yeah well going to the website and you know, there's a button there that says become involved. And yep. if you become involved, I can send information about, you know, the details of what, you know, what you can do with the database. But, you know, you can also just go and have a look. You know, you don't need to log in to read the fiction or to actually even access it in Trove. Yeah. You know, so just see if there's something that interests you. So I think one person um, who signed up said they were interested in ghost fiction. So I typed... I said, well, why don't you try typing ghost into the publication title? And that was like 160 titles just with ghost in the title. (laughs) And, I mean, good, like many more if you search for it within the text. So you can just use it as sort of a way of of thinking, what am I interested in? And then, so someone else said they were interested in works about the Riverina, so there were multiple titles with that in the title. (laughs) Like, it's just, like, just think of something you might be interested in and it could be just a, what I meant it for really is, is a, something that can allow people to explore this literature in whatever way they want. Mm-hmm. I mean, people who, who are interested in correcting text, it's sort of a bit of an um, addictive way to correct text because you've got the story to keep you going yeah. and you've also got the text correction, which is quite sort of, you feel virtuous, you know, improving things. and yeah, so it's You do, just, you feel so <laughs> smug. You're like, oh, I fixed that. I'm just winning today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very enjoyable. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, um, so yeah, if, if any of the listeners want to check out the project, obviously I'll, I'll link everything in the show notes. Um, and if they, so if they do sign up, I understand that you're going to start doing monthly updates. About yeah, yeah. Well, that was, I, I sort of thought people wouldn't really want to get their inbox flooded and I certainly wouldn't ever want to do that. Mm-hmm. But people see, once they'd signed up, I think, you know, there's a, people have, written to me and said, you know, they'd like to know well, what's happened, you know, what's going on. So, yeah, like the Trove Book Club was something that's happened just in the last couple of weeks, you know, that Trove's decided to run a book club based on the database. Yeah. And so, yeah, I thought, oh, okay, so maybe every month or so, like I could just update with some some things that are going on. And one of the things I really want to do is actually create some way so people can sort of claim a title to correct. I mean, mm. you can at the moment, but just through registering – but also get like a little scoreboard going so that people can like, you know, um, see who can correct the most titles or see oh, who can add the most titles. Idea. And also, like I was saying before, like a publishing platform. So once you've finished and it's fully corrected, you know, be like I'm going to have create a site where 
you can take that entire text and, and put it up and say, you know, this is a corrected version of an Australian novel that's never been published or of, you know, a, a Dickens novel that, you know, as it was published in the Australian version. So, yeah, those are some things I'm sort of planning. So I'm just going to update people as those sorts of things happen. Brilliant. And so, yeah, people can opt in or opt out of getting the, the monthly sort of newsletter, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Do you think it's a, yeah... We'll see. I mean, I no, think it's, no one's opted out a, yet. I think it's a great idea because, you know, I, when I've spoken to people about this project, I mean, people just have so many questions, you know. Like, yeah. I, I think there is a lot of interest and there's a lot of, you know, people get quite passionate about Australian literature and Australian history and, um, you know, thinking about this kind of, uh, I guess, I guess this, uh, you know, time where people were living quite rurally and it was very, you know, people out in the bush, they're isolated, the only, you know, the only communication they necessarily have with, like, news and what's going on is through newspapers. And, you know, I think there's, there's quite a lot of romance around this, which I, I imagine is why a lot of people are very interested in, you know. Some yeah. people might be thinking, am I going to discover the next Banjo Patterson yeah. poem that no one's ever read before? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting stuff, yeah. really. No, it is, it is. And there's, I mean... One of the things I've been doing is just answering questions sort of, you know, by email. And I'm, yeah. I'm more than happy to do that. But it just struck me, well, maybe, you know, we had some sort of way of sharing information as yeah, well. Yeah, so that's right. If people, if people have, have questions and the same it questions. comes up, I, yeah. can, I can put it in there as well. And, yeah, so we'll see. I mean, it's all it's all a sort of experiment. Um, it's never something – it's not something I've ever done before. And, and um, as long as people are interested, I'll just keep – doing it i guess brilliant well thank you so much and um yeah i guess if any of my listeners have any questions i can yeah direct them to come email me <laughs> brilliant all right well thank you so much okay thank you very much that was dr Catherine bode talking to us about the australian newspaper fiction database if you want to get involved read previously lost stories correct text join the trove book club check out the links in the show notes and find out how There were two big events that I managed to get along to in March. The first was Festival Muse, the second of an annual event hosted by Muse Food, Wine and Books in Kingston in Canberra. I did a detailed write-up of the event on the Tinted Edges blog, but in summary I managed to get along to the opening night and then to a panel called The Burning Issues of Now that was a fantastic heated discussion of Aboriginal issues in Australia. I also happened to be down in Melbourne while the Melbourne Art Book Fair was on. It was taking place at the National Gallery of Victoria, and I was super excited to get my hands on a couple of great books and meet some really great alternative publishers, including a published event from Tasmania, who are running the brilliant Lost Rocks project that I've been talking about on previous episodes. There are quite a few exciting events coming up that you might want to keep an eye out for. The ANU Canberra Times Meet the Author series is ramping up again, and they have an event with author Robin Cadwallader on the 26th of April, one with Hugh Mackay on the 1st of May, and a dinner event with Jennifer Egan on the 9th of May. The Sydney Writers' Festival starts on the 30th of April, so make sure you keep an ear out for the next podcast episode or two, because I may have some very exciting content for you. This year is the 100-year anniversary of Australian author May Gibbs' iconic Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie story about two tiny gumnut babies and their adventures. To celebrate, A light installation featuring these two beloved children's book characters will be projected onto Customs House during Vivid Sydney 2018 from the 25th of May to the 16th of June. There's a really exciting looking event coming up at Muse Bookshop on the 22nd of April with an Alice in Wonderland inspired high tea to celebrate the launch of the anthology Mad Hatters and March Hares, New Stories of Alice in Wonderland. And finally, Free Comic Book Day is coming up at Impact Comics on the 5th of May, so remember to get there early and get your free comics as well as free show bags. Don't forget to follow the Tinted Edges Facebook page to keep track of all the literary goings-on in Canberra and sometimes in Sydney. So I didn't get a whole bunch of reading done in March, and I only managed to read four books, but the highlight was definitely The Stolen Bicycle by Wu Mingyi, which has been shortlisted for the Man Book International Prize, as I mentioned earlier on. This book was just phenomenal. It was the set book for the Asia Bookroom Book Club in March, and the discussion was really robust. Wu Mingyi is an incredibly astute writer, and I came away from that book feeling like I had gone from knowing nothing about Taiwan 
to a lot about Taiwan, its histories, its people, and more than I could ever imagined about bicycles. I also read Tim Winton's newest novel, The Shepherd's Hut, which has been getting quite a bit of attention lately, um, especially because Tim Winton has been talking a lot about toxic masculinity. I haven't put my review of it up yet, and look, to be honest, I'm still not quite sure what to make of it. In some ways, yes, it does seem like a really piercing commentary on toxic masculinity in Australia, but then in other ways it seems like it is actually incredibly heavy-handed. Jaxie is a great character, running out bush to escape some horrific hardship, but I did feel like the message got a little obscured somehow. Another highlight was The Left Hand of Darkness by the late Ursula K. Le Guin, which I read for my feminist fantasy book club. We all found this book a bit challenging, and I think it's probably one of those books that was absolutely groundbreaking for its time, but has now maybe been overtaken by modern society. It's about a man from a sort of united nations of humans across many planets who arrives on a particular planet where everybody is intersex, and the difficulties that he faces navigating their political systems and their completely different ideas of gender. I haven't reviewed this one yet either, and again, I'm still not quite sure what I thought of it. Alright readers, that's it from me. I'll be back in May with plenty more book content just for you. So if you want to support this podcast and help to keep it on air, check out the Patreon page where you can support Lost the Plot for as little as a dollar an episode. You can also help out by following the Tinted Edges Facebook page, leaving a review on iTunes, or subscribing to the Tinted Edges website to keep up to date with book news and book reviews. Thank you so much for listening.